Welcome to the RCRM Speaker Series, Season 2. Hello, my name is Dr. Georgiana Stanchu, and I am happy to introduce everyone to the second season of the series. We will explore various aspects of loss in the context of military conflict. When this topic attracts scholarly attention, the unthinkable is often revealed. Complex facets of the dynamic between mourning and commemoration, deprivation and rejection or disposal of war byproducts surface. All of it leaves undeniable traces on the communities found in the path of the clash. The series will run in two parts, from January to June and after a two-month summer break, from September to November 2021. Each talk will be premiered on the Museum YouTube channel, followed by a podcast episode released three weeks after. Follow our social media for more schedule and updates. It is my pleasure to welcome everyone to the second episode of the RCRM Speaker Series Season 2. Our guest is Chad Martin, an avid researcher, mostly of his hometown, Palmerston, Ontario. Chad's love of history has led him on a journey through schooling at Wilfrid Laurier University and Sir Sanford Fleming College. Following a tenure as the curator of the Canadian Warplane Heritage Museum in Hamilton, Ontario, Chad moved on to consulting for museums specializing in artifact collections storage and preservation or exhibit development. In his personal time, he started the No One Goes Project, a prolific digital platform focused on the codes, continued preservation and documentation of the diverse history of Palmerston and of codes. Episode 2 of the RCRM Speaker Series Season 2 does just that because Chad will present his research on a native of Palmerston, Arthur Leith Ross, whose memory is preserved on a small plaque in the Palmerston Public Library. The plaque also states about Ross, quote, Late of the Lancashire Fusiliers and Northern Nigeria Regiment West African Frontier Force, and subsequently Chief Transport Officer of the Protectorate, who died 26 August 1908. Inspired by his father's service in the 30th Wellington Rifles, Arthur joined the militia as a teenager and dreamt of achieving a field marshal's baton someday. His ambitions took him on a perilous journey across the Atlantic to South Africa and then on to some of the many wars of burden for the empire. His adventures not only led him to the love of his life, but ultimately to his tragic demise. Let's listen to Chad. First, I'd like to thank the Royal Canadian Regiment for inviting me to speak today. It's a great honor to do this. My name is Chad Martin, and I've been researching the history of my hometown of Palmerston, Ontario, off and on for about 25 years. My goal has been to document as much of the community history as possible and share it with future generations. A lot of my research has been put up on my website, which is noonegoes.com. 
This story I'm about to tell is one I honestly feel slightly embarrassed for not having known existed until about seven years ago. Ever since, I've been attempting to delve as deep as possible into every detail I can find. Like so many historians, I'm fascinated by the thrill of the hunt and solving the mysteries of the story that needs to be pieced together like a never-ending puzzle. With that said, I hope you'll enjoy this story of adventure, romance, and Blackwater fever. I stumbled upon Arthur Leith Ross, the main character in this story, by sheer accident, or possibly from just lifting the veil of ignorance of my youth. I was visiting the local library in Palmerston, which was slated to undergo a massive renovation in the coming months, and I wanted to have a look at the old theatre on the upper level. As I was leaving, I took notice of something I had walked by thousands of times growing up, and yet never thought twice about it. Looking back on it, I remember it being covered by a coat rack or having a bench underneath so us kids could sit on and put our boots on. It was always just something there. No one ever mentioned anything of it or thought twice about who or what it was. Mounted on the wall for everyone to see was this beautiful bronze plaque framed in marble. The plaque simply reads, To the memory of Arthur Leith Ross, late of the Lancashire Fusiliers and Northern Nigeria Regiment, West African Frontier Force, and subsequent Chief Transport Officer of the Protectorate, who died 26th of August, 1908. This memorial is erected by his personal friends in the government service of Northern Nigeria in token of their affection and esteem. So the questions began flowing. Who was Arthur Leith Ross? And why was he in Nigeria in the first place? It seems to be a stretch of the mind to connect a small farming community in southern Ontario to Africa in 1908 of all time. And why was he memorialized in what at the time was truly the central hub of the community? You see, in 1903, the town council of the time made the controversial decision and accepted a Carnegie grant to build a public library. The community itself, being a railway unionized town, wasn't necessarily a big fan of Carnegie. Despite that, the library became the community hub, which included not only the library, but also the town council chambers, a police station, post office, and theater. So within five years of this prominent building being erected, it was the place chosen to honor a fallen son. For those who don't know Palmerston, it's a small town in southwestern Ontario, on the border of Perth and Wellington counties, roughly 110 kilometers north of London. The town literally sprang up from a farmer's field, with the announcement of the coming of, a, of the railway. From the announcement of the new station in late 1871 until 1875, the scattered population of, of farms grew to a population of over 2,000 people. By the time Arthur was born in 1877, Palmerston was being hailed as the next major economic centre of Ontario, with potential of rivaling Hamilton. Arthur's parents, David and Mary, moved to Palmerston shortly after Arthur's birth from Southampton, Ontario. David was a brakeman for the Wellington Gray and Bruce Railway, which ran from Guelph to Southampton. Palmerston was the central hub for the line, so moving there would have provided David with a lot more advantages when working. To paint a bit of a picture, I would like to take a, a little creative liberty, where this story may have begun. It's the summer of 1879, a young Arthur, only age two, and his mother, holding her newest child, William, are standing on the station platform in Palmerston, waving to Arthur's father. As David climbs aboard the passenger train headed to Guelph, he waves back with a reassuring smile and a note of sadness, knowing he's leaving his wife and young family alone for the next 12 days. But what ingrains itself into Arthur is his father's unique attire. 
As he boards the train, David would be wearing in all its splendor the uniform of an officer in the 30th Wellington Rifles, in which he served from 1873 to 1879. The dark green serge wool with a sharp red piping, gold braiding of a lieutenant on the epaulets and sleeves, and sharply contrasting white officer's sash, with the distinct pillbox hat, with visor, and gleaming, freshly polished buttons, would put any young impressionable mind in awe. From that day forward, young Arthur would have one goal in mind. He wanted to be like his father, standing proud in an officer's uniform and seeking out glorious adventure wherever the uniform may take him. Throughout the 1880s, Arthur and his three younger brothers, William, Charles, and Alexander, must have been a handful for their mother. David, now a conductor with the Grand Trunk Railway, continued to be based in Palmerston, would have spent much of his time working the lines across southern Ontario. Mary, working alone, would have spent most of her time trying to wrangle their energetic boys and limit the playing of soldier. However, at the age of 14, in the summer of 1892, most likely to his mother's chagrin, Arthur was able to convince his parents to allow him to sign up with the 29th Infantry Battalion, based in London. As a private, Arthur would have quickly learned the basics of drill formations and soldiering in a few short weeks of militia exercises. It was a perfect introduction to what was to come. That summer of marching in London obviously didn't change his aspirations. Shortly afterwards, Arthur signed up for, and was accepted, into the still young Royal Military College in Kingston. His dreams of climbing the ranks and becoming a famous field marshal grew stronger every day. After four years of study and rigorous training, Arthur graduated and returned to Palmerston. But, in 1896, there were no wars for a young enthusiastic officer to charge off to. The only option was to sign up for the local militia and wait for the call. Arthur joined the 30th Wellington Rifles and was given the rank of second lieutenant with the bold green uniform just like his father had 20 years earlier. Life as a military officer would have been enjoyable, but certainly not fulfilling for someone with high aspirations of military glory. It's unclear exactly as to what Arthur was doing between 1896 and 1899. It appears that he's on the 30th Wellington Rifle Rolls, first as a second lieutenant and then captain by 1899. Differing accounts claim he was still at RMC in 1899 and a part of the permanent active militia. Nonetheless, when the call for volunteers to serve the empire in South Africa came, Arthur leapt at the opportunity and immediately left for Quebec City. Upon arrival in Quebec City, Arthur immediately went to the recruitment center and fully expecting a welcome aboard, little did he know it wasn't to be. His request was denied and, as his future spouse wrote, Being poor and without influence, he saw no hope of gaining the field marshal's baton of which he dreamed except on active service. While for some, that would have squashed their hopes and with hung shoulders returned home to wait for another chance, it did not stop Arthur's ambition. Stanley Brown wrote in his book with the Royal Canadians that it was then the Quebec Pledge was made, and two officers, one being Arthur, agreed to sneak onto the Sardinian and stow away. This again is where the puzzle becomes a little mixed. Brown writes of three officers wanting to stow away. However, one got cold feet and backed out. Arthur's wife Sylvia later wrote that it was three officers total that stowed away. And a journal entry by Sergeant Edgar Redway mentions four stowaways, two of which were in the permanent forces. Regardless, we do know that Arthur was one of them. And four days out to sea, he came forward and presented himself to the officers. Knowing full well he had been instructed to return to his regimental headquarters after he was turned down to join the contingent, 
and being a stowaway technically made him a deserter. Arthur was fully ready to pay for the consequences of his actions. However, ultimately, his bold move worked. Lieutenant Colonel Otter knew it was unacceptable to cast away perfectly good officers. While officers were already in full supply, it was decided Arthur would be made a sergeant and accepted into the ranks. Surely walking a bit taller with his brazen accomplishment, Sergeant Leith Ross set himself to dealing with the long, arduous sea voyage that became the first test of the first contingent. Conditions on the Sardinian were cramped, to say the least. First-hand accounts mention the lack of any room. Men, equipment, and even horses were jammed so tightly, most men were only briefly able to leave their hammocks to get a few minutes of fresh air each day. Fresh food was almost non-existent, and even the fresh water was in such short supply that it had to be guarded. The long voyage finally ended on the 29th of November in 1899, when the Sardinian docked at Cape Town. Boarding the trains the next day, the Canadian contingent began a 40-hour trip by rail to Belmont, where they joined the rear guard of the British Army. The contingent remained in Belmont for the next two months, training, battling boredom, and disease. Initially, the troops were considered unprofessional and ill-prepared. The British command kept the Canadians in menial tasks such as guarding prisoners, rail lines, and performing other garrison duties. It wasn't until February of 1900 that finally the Canadians were asked to join with the frontline forces. This was a huge relief, as the health and well-being of the Canadian troops was being called into question. Even Lieutenant Colonel Otter remarked about the villainous water and lack of medical care for the sick. The war was being fought in a climate the Canadians were unaccustomed to, with vicious sandstorms, brutal heat, and the never-ending thirst. Assigned to the 19th Brigade of Infantry, the Canadian contingent began its long march through the rough terrain, marching on average 20 miles a day with 40 pounds of kit in ill-fitting uniforms and surviving on salt pork and biscuits. After a week, the column finally reached the Pardeburg Drift. On February 18th of 1900, the British and Canadian Army began a siege on the Boer forces, which were entrenched on the banks of the Motor River. The Canadians suffered what became the bloodiest day in its military history until the Great War, 18 killed and 60 wounded. Slowly but surely, the Boers were besieged and worn down, and not until the night of the 26th-27th did the Canadians receive permission to creep up on the trenches with the cover of darkness, coming within 60 yards of the Boer lines and digging in. When the enemy discovered the Canadian rifles bearing down on them, a quick surrender took place. Sergeant Leith Ross was certainly noticed for his devotion to duty and leadership skills, because shortly after the Battle of Pardeburg, he was commissioned in the Lancashire Fusiliers as a lieutenant. Again, some uncertainty in the puzzle comes about. In all likelihood, Arthur received the commission sometime in June of 1900, as he received the Johannesburg clasp to his Queen's South Africa medal, which occurred at the end of May. However, according to his wife Sylvia, he had applied to join and was accepted to the British forces deploying for the Ashanti expedition, which began in March of 1900. Unfortunately, due to a number of delays getting to Cape Town, Arthur missed the last transport and wasn't able to join the expedition. However, again, almost immediately after that, there was a call for officers and men to join a force led by Lieutenant Colonel Arthur Forbes Montanaro in eastern Nigeria to invade the Aero Confederacy, with Arthur being seconded by the Lancashire Fusiliers to join the West African Frontier Force. In November of 1901, Lieutenant Colonel Montanaro led a force of 87 officers and 1,500 soldiers on the Aero Expedition, which was an arduous series of seven battles between November and March of 1902, 
The British suffered nearly 800 casualties, but finally defeated the Aero Confederacy at the Battle of Bende. Arthur continued to serve the West African Frontier Force, where Arthur befriended another British officer, Major Upton Fitzherbert Ruxton, who became the catalyst of what much of what we know about Arthur today. Ruxton became a matchmaker of sorts and suggested Arthur write his sister Sylvia back in England. After months of letters, a romance blossomed. Arthur and Upton returned to England on leave, and when upon meeting Sylvia in person, Arthur proposed marriage. They were married in July of 1907. While the newlyweds celebrated their vows, Arthur received a dispatch notifying him that he was now appointed to be the chief transport officer and Zanguru of northern Nigeria. I also believe, but I don't have full confirmation, that this is when Arthur achieved the rank of captain. It was very rare for a wife to accompany her husband to a place considered dangerous, particularly a place commonly referred to as the white man's grave. So special permission was required from the High Commission which fortunately for Arthur was Sir Frederick Luggard, who, who held Arthur and his abilities in very high regard. It was with that approval the newly married Mr. and Mrs. Leithroth set out on a 21-day trip to Zanguru, deep in the remote reaches of Nigeria. Sylvia was only the third English woman to enter Nigeria by that time. She perfectly described why Arthur would even dream of, search, of serving in such a remote place. My husband went to Nigeria because pride made him ambitious and humility made him wish to serve. It was here the couple spent their first year of marriage. The journey to Zanguru was uneventful, for the most part. Sylvia describes in her book Stepping Stones, Memoirs of Colonial Nigeria, the changing landscape and the temperate coast of Africa slowly turning into a hot, arid climate that would, most would find difficult to become accustomed to. Along with them on the journey, they carried everything they would need to live properly for one year, including food and even a small horse-drawn dog cart for exploring their new homes. They both looked forward to the adventure they were embarking upon. When arriving in Zanguru, the young couple did not have much time to settle in. As chief transport officer, Arthur was in charge of developing, building, and maintaining a road and railway system within the territory meaning he spent long stretches of time touring the most remote areas while planning the future transport system that would help modernize the area. When the two were together, their love continued to flourish. Sylvia described the joyous times they had entertaining the other officers in their home and taking the dog cart for trips around the countryside. Arthur had become an accomplished polo player, and she described his love for horses and watching him and the other officers compete two to three times a week, despite the oppressive heat. Their time together was very enjoyable, and Sylvia's love for the remote country grew every day. In August of 1908, Arthur was preparing for another tour to view the newly surveyed road between Bachi and Loco, which would connect some very valuable tin mines. The tour was on hold while the rainy season was coming to an end, and with little notice, Arthur contracted blackwater fever, a severe form of malaria, and died on the 26th of that month. Sylvia said this, My husband had had blackwater fever once before, and had somehow survived, although he had been completely alone. The second time it happened in Zanguru, one doesn't know why, it was just an infection. But at the time, there was no known cure. He was at once taken to a small hospital, and two doctors stayed with him day and night, for two days, but he grew weaker and weaker and died within three days. 
Of course, death was accepted as part of the day's work, but he had been so much liked that the whole of his colleagues and even the black clerks and the transport boys were all shocked deeply and were, in a way, not so sorry for me as sorry for themselves in that they had lost a friend and an example. Everybody was kindness itself to me, but the only thing to do was for me to go home. Even Sir Luggard was shocked and dismayed at the news. He wrote of Arthur as an, off, an official of exceptional ability and initiative whose early death was a great loss to the country. Sylvia said in her memoirs, Of our party of five who had sailed from Liverpool 13 months before, I was the only one left. Without the resources to sustain a soldier's widow in Nigeria, Sylvia had to return immediately to England. Her love for Arthur L., as she called him, never waned. She often said that she had two loves in her life, Arthur and Nigeria. Sylvia Leithros returned to Nigeria many times in her life and worked diligently in many areas. She became regarded as one of the foremost authorities on Nigerian languages, culture, and history. Her work and writings are still studied today by scholars. Sylvia was never able to shake the loss of the love of her life. She worked with friends and family of Arthur to honor his memory in the form of two plaques, each bearing the same inscription, one located in Sylvia's home in Sussex and the other in Arthur's hometown of Palmerston. His epitaph in Zenguru simply reads, Faithful unto death. As for the plaque in Palmerston, it was lovingly cleaned and restored in 2015 and moved to an even more prominent location at the entrance of the Palmerston Public Library. While Arthur was not the first Palmerston boy to fall in the line of service, that unfortunate honour is held by Jonathan Marion, who was also serving during the Boer War with the South African Constabulary. Arthur is the first to have been memorialised. While Arthur Leith Ross may not have become the field marshal he dreamt of, he certainly was headed there. The accolades and regard many of his peers and superiors had for him was unmatched. Surely he may have made it to that notable rank, but sometimes the life of a promising young soldier can be tragically cut short. He may rest assured with the knowledge that he lived a rich, full life of adventure and romance like so many of those fantastic tales of history. Again, I would like to thank the Royal Canadian Regiment for inviting me here to speak today. It's been an honour to be able to tell the story of an almost forgotten small-town kid and his adventures. Thank you, Chad, for sharing with us your findings about a small-town kid with aspirations of adventure and military glory. Thank you all for listening to this podcast, and thank you to our loyal patrons. Next month, RCRM Speaker Series Season 2 will be back with Brad St. Croix, who researches a little-known episode during the Second World War, the Battle of Hong Kong. Fighting It Out, the Battle of Hong Kong's Contested Legacy will be released on 15 March 2021.